We are continuing our series this morning on the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1162. Last week, we started looking at the Fifth Commandment, uh, beginning to wade into what's called the Second Table of the Law, the portion of the Ten Commandments of God's law that addresses how we interact with each other, whereas the first table deals with our relationship with our Lord. The second table primarily addresses our relationship with each other. Now, of course, as we said, they're interrelated, they're interconnected. Every commandment implies every other commandment in one sense, uh, and so we can't really separate them super well, but we can uh, clarify at least a little bit. This morning, uh, or it's last week, uh, we talked about the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. I made the point that as much as we would like for this not to be the case, the default attitude, the default posture to which the Lord calls us is one of obedience to those to whom he has put in authority over us. We don't like that, but that's our default position. And this morning we're going to talk about some nuance to that, the principles behind the rare cases when we are in fact called to refuse to obey. This is likely going to feel at least a bit more comfortable than last week did but don't trust that feeling. Don't trust that feeling. And we'll talk about that some more later. This is a difficult topic because our emotions lie to us. My desire for rebellion, my desire to be wholly in control of myself drives my sinful heart to deceive me so that I can feel free to do what I already wanted to do anyway. This is a hard topic, fraught with traps. We need the Holy Spirit, and as we do every time, every time we open God's Word, we need His Spirit to speak to us. So if you're able, please stand while I pray for that, and remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your Word, and even before we start reading, our hearts are already rebellious. Our hearts are already running from you and beginning to shape our thinking about what we're going to talk about, what we're going to read. We're beginning to drive ourselves in a particular direction. We pray, Lord, that you would restrain us, that you would give us your spirit present among us to restrain our sinful hearts and to guide us into your truth from your word. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your name would be praised alone because of what we read and preach this morning. Let your name be praised. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse uh, 17. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 12 just to get us in, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, that is, in the temple, the temple complex area. Uh, and none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up, verse 17, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. 
But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they had heard this, they, enc- they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together all the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, that is the Sanhedrin, um, and they sent to the prison to have them brought out. But the, the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For the, before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him came Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. In a magazine article several years ago, Samuel Kamalasan illustrates the difficulty of submission through a folk story that originated in South India. And there's several versions of this story, but here the version that he told opens with a young boy who loved to play marbles. He regularly walked through his neighborhood with a pocket full of his best marbles, hoping to find opponents to play against. One marble in particular was his special blue marble that had won him many matches. But during one walk, he met a young girl who was eating a bag of chocolate candy. Though the boy's first love was marbles, he also loved chocolate. Shocking, I know. As he stood there, talking with the girl, smelling her chocolate, his mouth began to water. The rumbling in his stomach became uncontrollable. And he thought to himself, I have got to get my hands on those chocolates. So he concocted a plan, and he asked the girl, How about I give you all these marbles 
for those chocolates? She says, that sounds fair. Let's do it. So he put his hand in his pocket, searching by the tips of his fingers for the distinguishing cracks on the surface of that blue marble. And once he had identified it with his fingertip, he pushed it that down to the bottom of his pocket and pulled out all the other marbles. As he handed the marbles to the girl in exchange for the chocolates, the boy thought that his plan was a success and he turned to walk away. But as he began to eat the candy, suddenly he turned to the girl and he, he said, Hey, did you give me all the chocolates? Our fallen natures persuade us to posture ourselves in the same deceptive and defiant attitude as the boy in the story. We want everything that the kingdom of God has to offer. We want to have a secure sense of God's presence. We want all our prayers to be answered. We want to feel close to Jesus. We want to flourish in the riches of God's glory. We want it all. But we're unwilling to give up everything for it. We want to have the riches of the kingdom of God and keep our treasures too. Many times there is that blue marble in our lives, something, good or not, that we seem to be unable or unwilling to offer to the control of Christ. And the reality is until we can fully submit ourselves to God's will, until we turn that blue marble, whatever it is, over to Christ, our participation in God's kingdom will be limited because we're not Submitting ourselves to Him fully. As I mentioned earlier, we began talking last week about the fifth commandment, the command to honor father and mother. Just as a reminder, I made the point last week that honor to our parents begins as young children with obedience. But even after we're adults and are no longer required to obey, we must still accord our parents weight in our lives. Uh, giving them honor and respect, seeking their wisdom, treating them with respect and care uh, as they age. But then we also saw through the law of categories, uh, that is the expectation that God's law is always speaking to categories of thought, word, and deed, rather, to, rather than the tight specificity of our own legal codes. By law of categories, God has all authority in heaven and on earth, and any human authority in whatever sense, whether in the home, the workplace, the church, or in the civil realm, any human authority ultimately is designated and delegated by him. It derives its authority solely from Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Thus, we obey those in authority over us as unto the Lord, for they, in a very real sense, speak with his authority. That is our default assumed position in the world. Our default assumed position in the world is one of submission to the authority that Christ has placed over us under him. That is not a comfortable thought. We don't like that thought. It flies in the face of how we, particularly as humans, but especially as Americans, how we think of ourselves and think about the shape of the world. As Americans, we conceive of power, of authority deriving, you know this phrase, from the will of the governed. 
not as delegated from the Lord. On the one hand, we have to understand that the two ideas are not mutually exclusive, right? We're not talking about the divine right of kings here. These, are two, these two ideas are not mutually exclusive. The Lord works through second causes far more often than he just steps in and does a miracle in the world. And he can work through elections no less than he can work through wars of conquest or royal inheritance or violent insurrection, all of which we see in the Old Testament. Or literally any other means you can imagine. The Lord can work through anything we do as humans to accomplish his purposes. His sovereignty knows no boundaries. But when we're thinking of our own context, we have to remember that for whatever the process for selecting candidates, electing leaders, or appointing them, whatever, um, whatever the process is, ultimately the deciding vote is always cast by Christ. Whatever else is true, it is the Lord who raises kings or presidents or governors or mayors or dog catchers. And it is the Lord who casts them down, all for his own glory and for the good of those who are called by his name. And because this is true, we submit to those whom he has put in authority over us. That sounds great, right? I mean, it's uncomfortable, but okay, good. God's in authority. He's put those in authority over us. Cool. I understand how that works. And then we remember the awfulness of the actual human leaders who have existed in the world. I mean, you know, we could start with Hitler and Pol Pot and go right on down the list. Human leaders aren't great. Because even if they have the best intentions in the world, which is kind of a giant if, they're still finite. They're still human. Even with good intentions, they're going to make mistakes. And the reality is that most don't have good intentions. Most are just selfish, looking out for themselves, pure and simple. Some human leaders are actively wicked, actively seeking evil, though I suspect that's a lot more rare than, you know, polemics in the internet would make us believe, but whatever. There are some that are actively evil. Most are simply selfish. But let's draw this away from the political realm and into something that's more personal to us. It is easy to look at national or international leaders and point fingers, right? It's easy. We can always find something to be mad about. But almost all of us hold some measure of authority over the life of another as parents or supervisors at work, if nothing else. In your leadership, in your leadership, are you always and unfailingly righteous? Do you consistently encourage what is holy and discourage and reprove what is sinful? Do you consistently provide all the needful things for soul and body of those who are under your care? Do you live an exemplary life before them, encouraging them, as Paul said, to imitate you as you imitate Christ? Or do you sometimes seek your own good before theirs? Do you sometimes seek your own glory, your own profit, your own ease, your own pleasure, even at their expense sometimes? Do you require of those in your care sometimes what is wicked in God's sight? Or even simply what is beyond their power to perform? 
Do you ever get frustrated with your kids and correct them harshly? Overcorrect them. Obviously, the answer is, of course we do. We all do those things. It's who we are as sinful human beings. We are sinful people. Our sin touches every aspect of our being. We have no room to point fingers at anyone else as if we were righteous and had never sinned in this area. We strive for righteousness in our leadership as we do in our submission, indeed, as we do in the whole of our lives. And when we fall short of that goal, which is often, we repent. Ideally, we expect those in authority over us to be doing the same thing, to be striving for righteousness and repenting when they fall short. A mutuality of repentance and forgiveness going hand in hand. But of course, that ideal is rare, particularly in politics, but in really in all walks of life, we respond most poorly to the call of Christ in the area of authority and submission. This, I'm going to make a big statement here, you ready? This is perhaps the great sin of our culture. This is perhaps the great sin of our culture, leading to much else that we are far more likely to decry. When we have authority, we exploit it. When we are required to submit, we refuse and rebel and undermine those in authority over us. But Christ calls us to something better, to something higher. He calls us to a life of sacrifice. As leaders, He calls us to sacrifice our desires and our pleasures for the best, holiest good of those who are in our charge, pushing them beyond us to Christ. As followers, as those called to submit, He calls us to sacrifice our desire to be in control of all the things all the time, to submit to those the Lord has placed over us. That is our call. That is the picture of the upside-down kingdom of Christ, the one who had the authority to command obedience from literally every human ever, submitted himself to death, and we are called to emulate him. But of course, we have to live in the real world. And in the real world, as we see in Acts 5 and lots of other places in the Scriptures, we will face those in authority over us who misuse authority, who command what is not righteous or in our best interest, or who forbid what the Lord has commanded. We will have people over us who hate the Lord and anyone connected to Him. More often, we will have people over us who are simply apathetic, who just don't see why it's such a big deal that we care about Christ and His standard. What then? What do we do in those situations? How should we respond as Christians when those situations arise? How do we, at the same time, balance the righteousness that Christ requires of us, honoring them with the whole of our lives, with, on the other hand, the honor that He requires us to show that to those that he's put in authority over us? How do we balance the honor we owe to Christ with the honor that we owe to those who don't 
love him, but are in authority over us. We're going to be talking about the exceptions, the times when we must disobey, but even as we talk about them, we have to recognize that in our fallen condition, our default setting, our assumed posture is one of rebellion. We're pretty much always certain, check your heart on this, at least for me it's true, we're pretty much always certain whatever this is, it's one of those times that I need to defy. I can always come up, we're very good at creating a context, crafting a justification to show that this is one of those times that I am required to disobey this person in authority over me. Well, really what it comes down to is I I just don't want to do that. I I don't want to do this thing that you're telling me to do, and so I'm going to come up with a justification that makes it so that I don't have to, so that I can do what I really wanted to do all along. Well, the reality of that part of our sin nature should make us wary, should make us distrustful of our desire to rebel, our desire to refuse to obey. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who's the first person deceived? Me. When my heart sets out to deceive, I am the first one deceived. Far generally speaking, I am the one who is most deceived by my heart. Please understand that what I'm about to say is the exception, not the rule. It is the hard case that makes bad precedent and bad law. It does not change that as followers of Christ, our default response to authority is to honor always and obedience ordinarily. That should be our default response. And when we are forced to disobey the authority God has put into place over us, it must be with tears and humility and not with rejoicing. As we look at our passage this morning, some context here, uh, we kind of jumped into the middle of the story, right? Uh, The apostles had been confronted by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Acts 4. And the council had, verse verse 18 of chapter 4, the council had charged them not to speak or to teach uh, at all in the name of Jesus. And at that point, Peter and John had responded to the council uh, that the council, you must decide whether it is right to obey the council or to obey Christ, to obey God. And when we get to Acts 5, where the apostles had continued to preach, had continued to preach the gospel, I mean, preaching Christ's name, uh, in disobedience of the council's order, but obeying Christ's command to them, confirmed by, as I started, this is why I started reading in, chapter, in verse 12, confirmed by all of the things that the Holy Spirit was doing, the multitudes coming to faith and the healings that were happening, all of that was confirmation that they were doing what Christ had commanded. When they did that, the council then arrested them and put them in prison, only, of course, to have them released by an angel so that they could go back and preach Christ some more. And the council calls them basically to stand trial for disobedience. They respond bluntly, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. This is the first principle when we consider the exceptions. If there is a conflict between the Lord's commands and the dictates of human authority. If there is a conflict, obedience to the Lord must win every time, without exception. If there is a conflict between human authority and the Lord's authority, the Lord's authority wins every time. It must. 
all human authority derives from the Lord's authority, and therefore it cannot countermand what the Lord has commanded. When the council commanded the apostles to appear before them for judgment, they came because that was a right use of the council's authority. And they came peacefully. As we saw, that the soldiers didn't use force to bring them. They basically said, the council is asking you to come, please come. And they came. They came willingly because that was a right use of the council's authority. But when the council commanded the apostles to cease preaching, they refused because this was a direct contradiction of Christ's command to them. This is hard for us because our temptation is to absolutize everything. If so, if, if so-and-so, Mr. Smith, who's in authority over me, tells me to do something that God has forbidden, now I'm going to refuse to do anything Mr. Smith tells me to do at all because he's one time commanded me to do this one thing that I'm not supposed to. If you, Mr. Authority, command me, to do, command me in contradiction to Christ, I will therefore believe that your entire authority is destroyed and I am free to ignore you in all things. But that is not what we see here. The apostles obeyed the right commands of the council and will later obey the right commands of Caesar and his delegates and governors even while they disobeyed those particular commands that defied Christ. Even to their own harm. They willingly went to prison, and they stayed there until an angel broke them out. Later, when Paul and his companions are thrown in prison in Philippi, and an earthquake rattles down the walls of the prison and the doors fall open, they stayed anyway. And in staying, in obeying Christ and obeying the authority and staying in prison, we see the Philippian jailer and his whole family come to believe. Our default setting must be obedience. When disobedience is necessary, it is always with grief and always maintaining honor to those in authority as much as possible not with exultation, not with rejoicing that we get to flip off the leader. Yes, when there is a conflict between the command of Christ and the ruling of a human authority, yes, we must obey Christ. Clearly, obviously, nobody disagrees with that. But obeying Christ in one area does not grant us immunity to the command to honor those in authority. It makes it more difficult to be sure teasing out the nuance and the gray area when we work through these things. But it doesn't release us from this command to honor those in authority. Here's the reality. If a human authority commands what is wicked, we honor that person best by refusing to participate in his wickedness, imploring him to repent of his wickedness. Our goal must always be to live in peace and to see those outside the covenant brought into the covenant, brought into salvation. Salvation is not accomplished by conformity to the law. We don't get them to obey the law and therefore they're saved. We draw them in, we invite them into Christ's grace and then disciple them. Salvation is accomplished by the blood of Christ. But absent their salvation, even if they are not brought to Christ, it is better for them and for us to live in conformity to the character of the Lord than it is for them to reject Him utterly. 
It is better to live in obedience, even apart from Christ, than it is to live in disobedience. We refuse to obey wickedness, not in some sort of gleeful thumbing our nose at it, but in hope that our willingness to disobey and suffer the consequences, whatever they may be, our willingness to disobey, that our humble commitment to Christ will lead them to repentance and belief. We willingly accept the consequences, even if dire, even if it means our deaths. Because with, with Paul in Romans, we do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The apostles in our passage rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. We cannot obey wicked commands. We cannot submit to those who would forbid what the Lord commands or command what he forbids. That line is chiseled in diamond and set with adamant. It cannot be changed. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to pray only to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel 3 if you want to look it up later, they could not obey. They can't pray to someone other than the Lord. They continued to pray to God alone. And when they were arrested, they accepted that whatever the Lord chose to do, whether that was rescuing them out of the fire, as indeed he did, or letting them die in the fire, they said, either way, we're going to pray to God alone, not pray to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever you do, we're going to worship the Lord alone. They accepted the consequences. Even in disobeying, we are called to give honor to those the Lord has put in authority over us, to obey them in those things they command rightly, even while we are forced to disobey them in those things that they command which are wicked. Our default posture is to honor Christ by our obedience and submission to those whom he has put in authority over us. Now, this has become a hot topic in recent years with, you know, lots and lots of heated discussion, particularly about the idea that only the Lord can bind the conscience. Now, used properly, this is absolutely true. God alone is Lord of the conscience. But typically, at least in recent years, this phrase has been employed kind of as a a rhetorical get-out-of-jail-free card, a way to sound holy and righteous, I'm submitting to Christ, when really just what I'm saying is you can't tell me what to do and I'm not going to obey and yeah. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Even when we are absolutely right to disobey, even when it is absolutely commanded by God that we disobey in a particular thing, even then, we are never to be arrogant about our disobedience. So what does this phrase mean, that God alone is the Lord of the conscience? It's actually a truncated quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So you know I agree with it right up front. It's Westminster, right? Uh, It's a truncated quote from Westminster, chapter 20. The full quote is probably too long to read here, but the sense of it is, if you want to go look it up, it's Westminster 20, paragraphs 2, 3, and 4 are really where it talks about this. Um, But the the sense of it is this. First, if if any doctrine or commandment of men is in any way contrary to God's word, We are not required to believe and obey, and in fact, we are required not to believe or obey that doctrine or commandment. If the human authority directly contradicts God's command, we are required to obey God, not the human authority who is usurping God's name to command what God has forbidden. 
Right? That makes sense. We all get that. But second, if in matters of faith and worship, anything that is beside God's Word, that is, in matters of faith and worship, we are restricted to believe and practice only what God has specifically in His Word commanded. What isn't addressed in faith and worship is off-limits. But in all other matters, in things that don't touch on faith or worship, we are to obey God's specific commands, but those areas that are not covered by God's Word are left to the human authorities that God has put in place, and they are free to make laws and require our obedience. Let me give you an example, because this can be a little nebulous. Take smoking in a public restaurant, cigarette smoking in a public restaurant. In the first point above, if the human authority, if the governor or the mayor or whatever was to say, to smoke in a public restaurant is a sin that cuts you off from Christ, you cannot be considered a Christian in any way if you smoke in a public restaurant. This is obvious tripe. We are free to ignore it completely. We are framed in this way. It is a matter of faith and worship. It is fundamentally no different than what Paul addresses with circumcision in Galatians. It is adding to the gospel. And we are free and, in fact, required to reject it. But if the same human authority instead says, for the sake of peace and health in the community over which I have been given governance, I am forbidding the practice of smoking in public restaurants, they are well within their authority to do so. They have not flouted God's law or gospel by adding to it or taking away from it. They're not addressing faith in any way. In short, they're not binding your conscience. They're merely binding your actions. You are not required to agree with the prohibition. It doesn't touch your heart or your mind at all. It only touches your action. You can disagree. You can vote them out. You can write respectful uh, protest letters on and on. There's lots of options. What you cannot do is smoke in a public restaurant because they are legitimately using their authority to prohibit that. Now, obviously, I picked that illustration uh, because it shows the principle and it's a lot less fraught than some of the things that are currently being debated. But the principle remains the same. First, the Lord is the highest authority and we're required to obey Him completely. Second, the Lord has delegated limited authority to humans and we're required to honor them always and obey them in anything that isn't contrary to God's Word. Third, our hearts are deceitful and rebellious, and we will establish ourselves as the highest and sole authority in a skinny minute. Give your heart half an inch, and it will establish you as the sole authority right away. So fourth, we must deliberately and consciously establish in our heart and lives the priority of humble honor toward all, particularly those in authority, and heartbroken disobedience only when utterly necessary for the honor of Christ. Heartbroken disobedience, only when utterly necessary for the honor of Christ. And that's the key. What honors Christ? Where is our treasure? Hebrews 11 recounts the, the hall of the faith, those who served Christ in faithfulness. And while some of those mentioned, this is, I want to say, 38 or so 
of, of Hebrews 11. Some of those mentioned, quote, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Those are all great things. They're victories, and we're like, yeah, I want some of that. That sounds great. But where does it go right after that? says also, others were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They did not consider this life or control or ease as something to grasp in comparison to the hope that was theirs in Christ, the hope of redemption in Him. They accepted privation and hardship in this life in order to be faithful to Christ. All too often, we in our society and culture accept unrighteousness in this life in order to get our own way. In order, and, and then we justify it by saying we're defending Christ's honor, defending morality. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. The way up is down. The servant of all is the master of all. And he who is least will be greatest. Give honor away like water in the desert. Do not seek your own greatness, but seek to serve and honor all those whom the Lord puts in your life, whether in authority over you or those over whom you have been given authority or those with whom you are in parity. Serve and honor all those whom the Lord has put in your life. In all things, serve the Lord in His upside-down kingdom that has already conquered. You don't have to win the fight. You don't have to establish the kingdom of God. He did that already. It's done. Rest in His victory. Serve the Lord in His upside-down kingdom that has already conquered all of the ways of the world. He conquered by dying, and so do you. He is currently reigning, and His throne cannot be shaken no matter how the nations rage, no matter how the pagans shout, no matter what happens in this country or this world. His throne cannot be shaken ever. So worship Him by His blood and sacrifice your whole life and quit striving after the wind. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are on the throne. We thank You that there is nothing that we need to do or can do to make Your throne more secure. It is secure. We don't need to grasp after the wind to try and control our lives because you are sovereign. In your providential care, you control all your creatures and all their actions. You give us what is good, even if it is what, is the, what the world defines as terrible. And so, Lord, we submit to you.
We're terrible at it. We're really not good at it, but we want to submit to you. We want to submit to those that you put in place over us. Give us grace to live out your upside-down kingdom in this world, that we might honor you in the ways that we honor all around us. May your name be praised in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.